I were up here and I had a big bag of steak knives and I started just throwing them into the audience, okay, I would be doing less harm than false teachers do with the words that come out of their mouths. I really mean that because if I did this, I would be doing some physical harm, okay? But false teachers, what they do with their false teachings, not only does physical harm, I think it does, but it also does spiritual harm, does harm to relationships, and worst of all, does eternal harm to people. And that's why it is such a big deal. And that's why we have been spending the past four weeks talking about this because all of chapter 2 in Peter is talking about false teachers and warning and saying that there have been false teachers, there are going to be false teachers, and as believers, we need to be aware of this because they are, until Christ comes back, they are going to be false teachers. And it is very easy to see the reach of false teachers today. With media, with the internet, almost every false teacher has a way into every home and to every family. Sometimes direct access to uh, even kids through apps and different things that they're on. All these different venues. And oftentimes, even from the pulpits of so many churches and places where false things are being taught. So we need to be aware of this. We are in Second Peter chapter 2. And today we're going to read verses 17 through 22. So please follow along with me. There's a lot of imagery in these passages, in in these verses. So we're going to be unpacking this as we try to understand what is the message here. So, verse 17, again, talking about these false, false teachers. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And after washing herself, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It says some pretty expressive uh, imagery there that we will get to. We're going to see in this passage, the main point is that false teachers, they promise satisfaction. They promise freedom, but what they actually deliver is something very different. What they actually deliver is emptiness and enslavement. So let's look at the first part here in verses 17 and 18. And we'll see that false teachers promise satisfaction, but deliver, they deliver emptiness. They promise so much. 
And I think in this, I, I focus on satisfaction because the images here have to do with water. And I think what water is, it, it satisfies this thirst, it gives satisfaction, it gives nourishment. And we have two images here in verse 17, I think that have to do with this. The first, it describes these false teachers as waterless springs. Now in English, we can use the word spring in a variety of different ways. Uh, but here it's not talking about the little metal uh, wind-up coils in your watches. If you have an old watch that actually still uses a spring, it's not that type of a spring. And it's not talking about the, the season of spring. There's winter and then spring, and do we have rain or not? This is talking about springs in the ground, that if they are, have water coming out of them. And imagine that you are in the desert, you're in a dry place, and you are parched, and you are, you're thirsty, you're dying of thirst, and you see something ahead that looks like a spring, and you've heard maybe that there's, there's a spring in this direction, and you get there and you think that you're going to be satisfied by this, and it's dry. And there's nothing there. It's the, the spring has, has been dry. I mean, it's kind of an oxymoron even. It's not even really a spring if there's no water springing from it. But that's what these false teachers are. They promise this, but they don't deliver. There's nothing there. There's nothing that's really going to satisfy. It just leaves you in your, your thirst and in your, your state of, of death. So he calls them waterless springs. And then it says, mist driven by a storm. Now, to me, that was, that's tougher to figure out what, what exactly you mean by that. Mist driven by a storm, because at least the way that it works around here, uh, if you have a storm, you're, you're going to get water, right? And a mist, it seems like, well, there's still water in the mist. So I had a little bit of a tough time, and some of the commentaries didn't give a lot of help. And uh, I, we talk about different weather phenomenon, and I didn't quite understand that. Um, but one thing that I thought... I found was helpful is uh, the word mist can also be translated uh, as haze. It can have different ideas. And realize, okay, you have a, a haze. And, well, when it says storm, sometimes we're thinking, well, this is a rainstorm, but what if it's a different type of a storm? And I was driving this past week on, on Patterson, and there was a, a farmer doing some stuff in his field and was kicking up all kinds of dust, and there was this cloud, and I realized, oh, you know what? Think of this. You're back in, uh, whether uh, you're in you know, the land of Israel or if it's being written from Italy or wherever, you know, these areas, very dry areas. And if you had a, let's say, a windstorm that came through, it would kick up all this dust off the sand or different things. And it might look from a distance like, oh, rain clouds. Good, we have rain clouds coming. But then you realize, no, that's, it's a sandstorm. There's no moisture in this. This is not anything that's good or water that's going to satisfy. It's just a, a bunch of dust or sand that is, that is being kicked up by the wind. In the same way, these false teachers, they give the appearance of satisfaction. They give the appearance that they're going to be able to give you what you need. They'll promise all these different things, wholeness and, and peace and maybe even health and wealth and healing and all this, but they don't deliver. They can't deliver any more than a, a sandstorm is going to satisfy your thirst or give you life. So you see those images talking about what these false teachers are like. And then it says their, their destiny. For the gloom of utter darkness, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So you think, are these false teachers, are these guys going to heaven or not? These are not going to heaven. 
Because heaven is not the gloom of utter darkness. These are people that are they're unregenerate, they're, they're unsaved. They're leading other people away from Christ, trying to pull them into sin or keep them from Christ altogether. And these false teachers that are being talked about here, these are people, they're on, they're on the highway to hell. That's where they're going. And they're trying to get other people to follow them. Hell, here, it's interesting too. It talks about the gloom of utter darkness. You know, sometimes people think, well, you know, hell wouldn't be that bad. I'll have my friends there. You know, we'll hang out, we'll party. Uh, this gives the imagery that hell, I think, is not going to be, well, I don't even think it's going to have light in it. I think there's something about this that's saying it's going to be utter darkness. That's how it's described. And I think part of it is the part of the horror of hell. I mean, it is described in Revelation as a lake of fire. And you think, well, fire must have some kind of light. But it's a different kind of fire. It's some kind of spiritual fire. And who knows if you can even see in hell. But it seems like you're going to be utterly cut off. You're cut off from the Lord, but you're cut off from other fellowship. You're in solitary confinement forever and ever in this gloom and darkness saying i don't want relationship with god and ultimately then you don't want relationship with others and you're just absolutely cut off in this place that's described as a lake of fire it's a horrible thing you don't want to follow the false teachers there you want to follow the lord you want to take the salvation that he has to offer us hell is not a party it is conscious eternal torment and it is the ultimate in solitude. So we see here it's saying that um, wh- this is what they have coming to them. And then verse 18, we keep walk- we're going to keep walking through this verse by verse, gives a reason. Why is it that this is the, the fate for these false teachers? And this gives a reason. It starts with the word for, which means because. And it says, for speaking loud boasts of folly they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error so this is why they they deserve this why they have this coming they boast loudly but their words are are foolishness last week pastor nick really dug into the fact that there's all this pride that is a characteristic of these false teachers. And it says they're preying on those that are, that are barely escaping. They pick on the weak. They pick on the new converts. They pick on the, the, the baby Christians. You know, those that are uh, new or barely making it out. It's like wolves, you know, going after the, the easy picking, the easy prey. And it's especially what they do. And which, why it's so important for you to, to grow as a Christian to not just say, well, I'm, I got saved, and so I'm okay to, I'll just stay this baby Christian, and at least I'm going to make it into heaven. Well, when you're vulnerable like that, you're like, you're like a baby in the wilderness. I mean, the wolves are going to get you. You need to grow. You need to establish you know, strength. You need to establish the defensiveness against, against the enemy. We need to be under God's word. We need to be growing. We need to be nourished by this to help us to stand up against false teachers and to be able to stand up for the sake of others against these false teachers. Because there's always going to be, we pray, new Christians and people coming along. 
and we need to be able to protect them as well. So it's important for us to be growing and to understand and to be able to handle God's word. The wolves are going to go after them. But then I also, I really want to focus on where it says here, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. And we see here one of the ways that is so common that false teachers go after people is through sensuality. It is through physical pleasure, sexuality, sexual pleasure, sexual intimacy. And that was true at this time when Peter wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. It's been through all the way through, true all the way through, and it's definitely true today. I mean, so many of the biggest controversies that are going on right now as far as teaching and with false teaching have to do with this area. So as much as we would not want to talk about these things, we're, we're, we're forced to because it is the area that, uh, not that Christianity has changed or that the Bible has changed its teaching, but there's so many false teachers both in society and even so many, even within what claims to be the church that are trying to say different things. So much false teaching appeals to, to sexual appetites so back then, one example, uh, some were developed into a heresy that was called Gnosticism. And part of this, uh, sometimes they viewed that the, the physical really didn't matter. And so sometimes what they said then was, well, if the physical doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And God doesn't really care. He just cares about your soul, your spirit. So do whatever you want with your body. And if you want to go have fun, if you want to uh, do whatever as far as... Uh, sexual pleasure, hey, God doesn't care what you do with your body. He only cares about your soul or your spirit, and so do what you want. And some people said, hey, that sounds great to me. I can have my relationship with God, and I can have all the crazy fun that I want. And that was a heresy back then. In the same way today, many false teachers ignore or deny the Bible's sexual ethic. The Bible's sexual ethic that God intends sexual intimacy only for a husband and for a wife who are married to each other. At the core, that's what it teaches, that God created sexual intimacy. This is a gift. It is his idea. It's not this perverted thing that humans came up with or something that we designed. God designed it this way. He made Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, and he's the one that designed how this was going to happen, okay? Uh, God created them with their biology and how this works, and he created it as a uh, beautiful, pleasurable thing. He didn't say, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and they had a, well, how are we going to do this? Let's, let's try and figure out a way. No, God designed it. So he is the designer, he is the creator, and he knows how this works. He knows how it's supposed to be intended. And at the core, it's intended for a husband and a wife, one man, one woman, that are married to each other. And if it's anything besides that, this is not God's purpose. And so I know in today's society, a lot of our focus is on uh, LGBT issues and uh, two guys and two women. Of course, this would be outside of this because in God's view, that would not be a marriage and it's not God's design and it, it doesn't work. But this also is applies gives us ethic as far as heterosexual relationships as well. And so anything that is outside of marriage, whether it's before marriage, whether you're married to somebody else, or, and something outside of that, it is designed 
for a certain place. But God's gift of sexual intimacy is a good thing. We need to stress that. And an illustration that I often give is to point out that sexual intimacy is like fire. I find this illustration so helpful. Fire is a good thing. Fire does many good things. We are glad to have fire. Fire is a gift. But if fire, fire is good when it's where it is supposed to be. If fire is in the fireplace, it is a good thing. You can heat your home, you can cook your food. If fire is getting out and it's on the sofa and it's on the curtains and it's all over, then it's a bad thing because it's out of the confinement of where it's supposed to be. And I think of that as far as sexual intimacy, when it's where it's supposed to be between a husband and wife that are married to each other, God's design purposes, it's a good thing. It brings children, it brings intimacy, all these different things. It brings a oneness that between the husband and the wife that's meant to be there. But in all these other places, so much destruction. And we see so much of that destruction and hurt in the world because of this. But we have so many people now that are saying that, oh no, it doesn't matter if you keep the fire in the fireplace. You can have it wherever you want. If you want to have your fire on the curtains, if you want to have it all over the house and the neighbor's houses and everywhere, that's fine. And it is, it is hurting people and it's bringing destruction because this is not what God intended. And I could give all kinds of examples. I mean, there are, not just in the world today, and we recognize that, uh, but even in so many churches that either don't teach this or teach things that are in opposition to this. And I ran across this article, um, and this is from somebody, this was just 2020, this article, but this is a guy named Justin Welby, And he's not just some little nobody, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England. And this article, this is from The Guardian in England, Church sorry for saying that sex is just for married heterosexuals. The Archbishop, the leader of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, apologized for a statement that the Church of England had put out saying that sex is for a man and a woman that are married to each other. And he issued an apology. Sorry for saying that. Sorry that we said that for all the, the hurt that that caused. I think, how backwards is this? Apologizing for what the, the Bible teaches, what the Bible tells us is the truth. I mean, we want to communicate it in the right way. We want to communicate it in a way that is, uh, that is loving and that is helpful. But this is what scripture teaches. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a of prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is teaching that God cares about what you do with your body. And that God is the one that directs this and that he has his purposes. This is saying back, back in the day, well, it, even if you have 
intimate relations with a prostitute. You say, this is, it doesn't mean anything, there's no love there, it's just, you know, physical things that are happening. Paul is teaching us here that there is something spiritual that is happening. There is a bond that is, that is happening and trying to occur. Because God designed sex kind of like superglue, that it is meant to be something that unites a man and a woman t- together permanently until death do you part. You know, superglue, if you're using that, you, you don't use it on something that you intend to take apart. You want to decide, okay, this is, I intend this to be a permanent thing. Sometimes I describe it like this. If you were to take superglue and put it all over your hand and then uh, superglue your hands together, that would be a bad idea because eventually you'd want to pull your hands apart. But if you superglued your hands together and then just imagine this, you rip your hands apart, you'd be leaving little chunks of this hand over on this hand and vice versa. And in a way, I think that's what people, what happens to people when they are engaging in promiscuity, fornication, going from one partner to the next. They think it's just meaningless fun, but they are engaging something that God has designed to bind two people permanently. This isn't like a post-it note. You can stick it and take it off. And that's why people find time and time again, there is so much pain and so much hardship that comes from those relationships and those relationships being broken up because there's spiritual damage that is happening. So when the Bible talks to us about the sexual ethic, what it is doing, it's telling us, this is how God designed this gift to be used. And we shouldn't apologize for telling people in love that this is how God intends this. That is a good and a helpful thing to do. Uh, my boys had birthdays this week, uh, this past week, and Joel, I got him a, a bow and arrow. And I get him this, and it's a gift, but I have to teach him this is how you use it. This is how you use it safely. This is how it's designed to be used. Because if you use it the wrong way, if you start you know, putting the, the arrow different places or pointing it different ways, you can do a lot of harm to yourself. You can do a lot of harm to other people. You can, you can even wreck the thing that is meant to be a gift and meant to be something that you can use for good. So when we talk about God's sexual ethic, what we're trying to do is to help people realize this is how it's designed and to save yourself from, from a lot of pain, save people around you from a lot, of, a lot of heartache and a lot of spiritual damage by using what God gave correctly. God is the designer. He knows how it is supposed to work. But there's a lot of people that are really glad to, to hear things um, that'll tell them that they don't have to be bound to these rules. They want freedom and freedom from different rules. And so we move on to the, the second point, is that false teachers promise freedom, but they end up delivering enslavement. That's ultimately what they give. Verse 19 again They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. False promises of freedom. Think all the things that people want freedom from. And there's there's good freedom. There's things that we're we're glad we're glad to we live in a free country. But when we think of freedom, what kind of freedom are they offering? What kind of freedom do these people want? Is it freedom from confinement? Confinement to what? God's rules? God's morals? His design, intent for the world? 
maybe freedom from any fear of, of judgment. If they can be told that, hey, don't worry, there's, there's not going to be a day of judgment. You're not going to have to answer for this. There's not going to be consequences. And that might be part of what's going on because when we look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, it's going to talk about the return of Christ and it's going to talk about uh, that there is a day of judgment to come. And maybe the false teachers were denying that. But I think of the, false, the type of freedom that our society wants today. They want freedom from any type of rules. You want to be able to follow your own heart, do your own thing. People want freedom from consequences. They want freedom from any type of unchosen obligations. Anything that's just imposed to us. Or even if we did choose it, if we change our mind, we should be able to be free from it. And especially today, as we've mentioned already, sexual freedom. And just like these teachers themselves, they're, they're promising freedom, but they're not even free. They are enslaved to this. And if you follow them and what they're teaching, they're going to be enslaved as well. This really isn't a freedom because everyone still serves a master. There are always consequences. Sexual liberation did not bring true freedom. You know, in the 1960s, there's so much talk about the you know, sexual liberation and getting away from all these, these old ideas that uh, sexual intimacy was supposed to be in marriage. And they said, well, they have this freedom and you can have this uh, new culture where you can hook up and do what you want to. And they said, this will bring so much freedom. We look at our world today, is that what it brought? Did it deliver that? Are people actually happier and healthier with all this freedom? I ran across an article it was this past uh, April 7 in the New York Times. So c- consider the source of what I'm about to read. This is not from some Christian website. This is from the New York Times. There's an article by Christine Emba, the author of a book, Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And this article drawn from that was titled, Straight People Need Better Rules for Sex. I'm going to read part of this. Again, New York Times. Nearly half of American adults and the majority of women say that dating has gotten harder for most people over the past 10 years. According to the Pew Research Center, fully half of single adults have given up on looking for a relationship or dating at all. Rates of sexual activity and and partnerships and marriage have reached a 30-year low with young adults leading the retreat, retreating from relationships altogether. I go on, quote, I don't think older generations realize how terrifying dating is for the current generation, fumed one young Twitter user to the tune of 18,000 likes. Quote, absolutely chaotic out here. When I interviewed dozens of people for my book on sex and relationships, I found that women in particular discuss their sexual experiences in visceral terms. Encounters that end in unexpected and alarming acts, a choking, say, or other porn-inspired violence, and that they go along with it out of surprise or resignation. After all, if consent is given, and it often is, there are no grounds left for protest. Navigating our love lives has always been difficult, but today the general outlook among heterosexual daters has come to take on a less playful, more depressive tone. The article goes on to say, 
This pessimism comes at a moment when we might expect the opposite. After all, one could say that we're living in the golden age of sexual freedom. The average age of first marriage is rising. It's more acceptable than ever to remain single or to pursue a wide variety of relationship styles. A majority of the public finds premarital sex acceptable. Birth control for women is widely available and with health insurance often free. Sex positivity is celebrated in progressive circles with sexual adventurousness championed and inhibition often looked down upon. We have breached the ramparts of repression and the wall of silence that prevented us from expressing our sexuality has, for the most part, fallen. Getting rid of the old rules and replacing them with the norm of consent was supposed to make us happy. Instead, many people today feel a bit lost. This is an article, New York Times, within the past month. The article concludes, In every other situation common to the human experience, eating, drinking, exercise, even email, we have come to realize that limits produce healthier results. It's unlikely that sex and relationships are an exception to the rule. An unrestrained sexual culture hasn't necessarily led to better sex for all or to better relationships. In many cases, it has inspired numbness, callousness, hurting others and being hurt. And rather than being titillated, sexual overload has become boring. Rules can make things more exciting, more beautiful, more open to the possibility of something better, even if we aren't there yet. Unquote. From the New York Times. The sexual liberation that was supposed to promise all this freedom and all this happiness has led to the exact opposite. So much hurt, so much dysfunction. And even with secular society realizing there's a brokenness and an emptiness to this. Instead, let me give you one more article. This is research that uh, was produced from a survey of more than 50,000 women. Again, not a specifically Christian survey. Uh, But the results of this, it was talking about divorce. And the main headline of this was saying that if you wait to get married until you're at least 30, you have less of a chance of divorce. If you marry too young, you have more of a chance for divorce. But buried in the research was this very interesting tidbit that should have been the headline. Let me read this. As we recently discovered, however, there is an interesting exception to the idea that waiting until 30 is best. In in analyzing reports of marriage and divorce from more than 50,000 women in the U.S. government's national survey of family growth, we found that there is a group of women for whom marriage before 30 is not risky. Listen. Women who married directly without ever cohabitating prior to marriage. In fact, women who married between ages of 22 and 30 without first living together, had some of the lowest rates of divorce. What a shocker. What a shocker that if you do things according to the way that God says to do them, it actually works out better for you and for everyone else. Wow. I'm glad we did a survey to figure that out. If only, if only there had been someone, some way that we could have known this ahead of time. I don't know how that would have been. 
this big secret of how this works. If only maybe the designer, the one that made us and made our world, had, had somehow um, told us and communicated to us what his intent was and what works best. You realize Christians in the Bible and God were not trying to be killjoys about this. It's a matter of saying this is honestly what works best. This is what gives true freedom. You know, the world is like saying to a, uh, it's a great illustration, I didn't come up with this, but it's like saying to a, a train, don't you feel confined to be on those railroad tracks? Don't you wish you could be off of those tracks and just explore the countryside? A train that leaves its tracks does not experience more freedom. It experiences less freedom. True freedom is living according to your design. And that's what God wants us to have. But these false teachers, they teach the opposite. They're saying, jump those tracks, follow me into freedom, but really if you follow them, you're following them into wreckage. And we see those false teachers, they are enslaved to bondage. They are having their train wreck of a life, and you don't want to follow them into that train wreck. Moving on, verse 20. We'll read this again. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So look at what it's saying here. It's saying it would have been better for them to never have, uh, it looks like they dabble with Christ. They've experienced this. They've, uh, we've seen they're not going to, to heaven, but it seems they've made some sort of profession. They've pretending to be Christians at the very least. And maybe they've had a time where they've kind of changed their life, maybe at least on the outward side. But it said they're, they're still in bondage to this. So in one sense, they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but now they're still in this bondage and they're in a worse situation than they were before. And that turning away from Christ back into sin leaves a person worse off than, it, than before. Now, again, is this talking about someone who is genuinely saved? Now, there are some that argue that, and they point out this, and there's good to, to notice, some of the language here really makes it seem that they are. And we notice in this passage, it talks about uh, they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and this is where it helps if you have your Bible. If you look back to in chapter 1 of Second Peter, notice that if we look at verses 3 and 4, it uses some of the same language to describe genuine believers. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own excellency and glory, by which he has granted to us his very precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become takers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It talks about knowledge of the Lord. 
It talks about escaping from the corruption of the world. And some say that, well, this means that it looks like this is talking about people that were genuine believers, but now they've lost their salvation. You know, they've gone back to this, and and now they're going to have more condemnation because they're unsaved, and now they're even in a worse situation. Now, hang on, I'm going to come back to this, but I just want you to to realize uh, some of the reason why some people would say that uh, this is talking about genuine Christians. But you know what? Even if you take that view, realize the one thing that is for certain here is that there is no comfort for the apostate. An apostate is someone that either is a Christian or at least claims to be a Christian and then denies it and walks away from everything. You know, today they talk about deconstructing the faith. You know, I, I used to be a Christian, but I deconstructed. And that sounds so much more, uh, so more, so much more sophisticated. But the biblical term is apostate, that you have, you have left what you once professed to believe. You've abandoned this. You know, maybe you grew up in, in the church, that you knew this, you claimed to be it. Some people were even pastors. And like, I give it all up, and I don't even claim to be a Christian. Some I mean, Christian musicians that have you know, just walked away from everything and deny even being Christians at all. They're, they're apostate. And whether you believe that these are referring to people that were Christians or claim to be Christians, this is saying that it's, you're in a worse situation either way if you have been part of the Christian community in life. And if you walk away from this, you know it, but then you leave it and then you reject it. And then look at the statement at the end. And I think there's some little, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you my take on this in a second, but I'm really helped from what it says in verse 22. There's some great imagery here. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So the first here we have the the dog returns to its own vomit. Dogs, this is truth, are disgusting, and they will eat their own puke. I know there's debate whether cats or dogs are better. Okay, and there's two types of people out here. There's people that believe that cats are better than dogs, and there's people that are wrong. Okay? <laughs> I believe I got the Bible on my side here. The Bible here is teaching dogs are disgusting. They eat their own puke, okay? Now, okay, I admit I am, uh, I'm a cat person, I'm a cat lover, and so I'm a little bit biased here about the superiority of cats. I love my cats. And I'll tell you this story. Um, just this past week, uh, Hope and I were sitting on the couch, and I don't remember how this came up, but she said to me, oh, you only have two categories in your mind, theologians and cats, I said, theologians and cats, I, I should have argued and said, that's oversimplifying. What are you talking about? I think of more things than theologians and cats. But instead, where my mind went was cat theologians. <laughs> and then I started listing and making up on the spot different cat theologians, like Meowton Luther, uh, John Clavin, uh, St. <coughs> Augustine, <laughs> and then... Um, uh, Tom Cataquinas. <laughs> I'm going to stop now because I realize my, my audience for this is very, very narrow. 
But the whole point of this is that, yeah, okay, dogs are gross. That's disgusting. Um, you know, to, if you haven't seen this, I do have a video clip lined up. Uh, to, no, I don't. <laughs> but now you have it in your mind, which is worse. But yeah, dogs will eat their own vomit. So that which has made them sick, and not good for them, they have thrown this up and they will go back and eat it. They'll go back to what is, has just been, they've expelled from them. And think of how irrational sin is. Something that we realize is terrible for us. Something that we realize that we need to be rid of. But this is saying that when people are like this, these false teachers especially, and those that follow them, you know, this, the vomiting is not genuine repentance. This is them realizing negative consequences and at least for a time wanting to be rid of this or having to. But as soon as they can, they want to go back to it because their desire hasn't changed. Their motivation hasn't changed. They still want this, which is disgusting and which is... Uh, sin kills. Sin is, is horrible. And to go after it again and again makes as much sense as a dog eating its own vomit. And then it gives the other illustration, a sow, a pig, saying after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire, wants to wallow in the mire again. And saying that's what false teachers do and people some that, that follow them, they just, they're right back in it. They're right back in the filth. There might be a temporary time of cleaning up that pig, but that pig is going to go right back into the slop and get disgusting again. We asked the question before, are these false teachers, were they genuine believers or not? And mentioned that there's some you can make a case that it kind of looks like they were, they've cleaned themselves up. But here's something I want you to think about. If you wash up a pig, what is the pig now? It's still a pig. Okay? And that's why it is going back into the slop, because its nature has not changed. The dog goes back to the vomit. Its, its nature has not changed. It has not been changed to a different type of animal. It has not received a new nature. And to realize here that cleaning yourself up on the outside is not going to save anyone. We can talk about rules for sexual ethics, but if you leave everything behind, and even if you can do that, and even if you left sin behind, you could clean yourself on the outside, that is not what gives you saved. And in fact, if you don't have a new nature, you're, you're not going to stay in that case. You're going you're to go back to it eventually anyways. But being cleansed on the outside doesn't save True salvation results in a new nature. It's called regeneration. It's called being born again. True generation brings a new nature with it. And that's why when we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, we have to look more carefully there. It's not just that they've received knowledge of Christ and not just that they've escaped some of the defilement, but notice it says that they've been made partakers of the divine nature that they've escaped these things because God has given them a new birth, given them change from within. And that's why the passage goes on and says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So being cleansed on the outside is not what saves you. And even if you trust in Christ, you've received new birth, you've received a new nature, and that comes by grace alone. It's earned by Christ on the cross, his perfect life and dying on the cross. He earned it all. You don't earn any of it. He gives it to you, offers it to you by grace. It is a free gift. You don't pay for any of it. He paid for all of it. And you receive it through faith, through trusting him, relying on him. Okay? And the new birth, salvation, when this happens, you you are saved. God will start changing you and he will start cleansing you, not just from the outside, but he makes you into a new creation. You're no longer a pig. Okay? You may have some pig memories and you might still want to do that, but you're not a pig anymore. You're something new. You're something clean. And you're not saved because he is changing you, but when he saves you, he does change you. And he does work in your life. And therefore, it gives you that confirmation that you really have been saved if you see that new nature being worked out in your life. So come to Christ. Trust him. And then as you follow him and you have genuine change, it will confirm your actual salvation that you have. Are you tired of eating your own puke? Are you tired of going back to the same disgusting sin over and over? Without Christ, you have the same old nature and you're just going to go back to it the same way these false teachers did. But in Christ, there is salvation, there's regeneration, there's a new birth. There are going to be struggles, yep. But God genuinely changes you and will be at work in you. And one day, that change will be complete. Jesus can give you new birth and a new nature. So if you want true freedom and true satisfaction, come to Christ. Jesus offers real refreshment. Jesus offers real freedom. Who the Son has set free is free indeed. And Jesus offers living water. Near the very end of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus promises, and he delivers. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your warnings against false teachers, those in society and in churches that will want to lead us astray, promising satisfaction, promising freedom, but delivering nothing but emptiness and and bondage, enslavement, Lord God. But we thank you that through Christ there is true freedom, freedom from, from sin, freedom to serve you, freedom to be who you created us to be. And Lord, in you there is genuine satisfaction. There is peace. There is life forevermore. And so, Let us hear the words of Scripture. Let us hear you calling to us, saying to us, come, and may we come to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is is still in the old nature, Lord God, work in them, change their heart, draw them to you, that they would come and receive freedom 
and forgiveness. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.